Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. If you missed this service, we hope to see you this Sunday at either 8.45 a.m. for our praise and worship service or 11 a.m. for our traditional service. Now, here's this week's message. Today, we're embarking on a 10-week journey to study the core beliefs of our Christian faith. And these beliefs, the, the reason why we're studying them and learning them is, is just so we can understand more about how Jesus would have thought. And of course, this will lead us to become more like Jesus. Remember, at the end of the day, our goal as Christians is to be more and more like him, and this will lead us towards that. Whether you're just starting off as a Christian or maybe you've been a Christian your whole life, either way, this series will be a great review or maybe a great study for you to just grow and know more about Jesus and our faith. And so this morning, because we're looking at this deep topic, I want to start with a very deep theological question, okay? So hang with me. Just, it's, it's heavy, all right? You with me? Four of us, the rest of us. What happened? All right, we're there, okay. Have you ever had something that seemed like it was your arch enemy. All right, it's really not that deep, okay? It's light, all right? So just follow me. Have you ever had something that just, if you thought about it, it just made you upset, it just caused your blood to boil, you just couldn't really understand it, and it just drove you crazy and furious? For me, it's algebra. Anybody else? I'm not kidding, it's algebra. See, math is one thing, but then you throw some letters in it, I, I, and then you have to follow a bunch of rules, and if there's one thing you need to know about me, I don't particularly care for rules, and so there's all this stuff you have to do in order to understand the answer for this complicated math, and unfortunately, when I was in ninth grade and I was taking algebra, I would express my disdain for algebra to my teacher, and so the second time I took it, because I did fail that year, fail that year it was a little bit easier but no matter how much I try to tell her I didn't like it and I would never use it, and I'm, I, I believe I'm still right, it's the most pointless math ever, she would disagree and they would try to explain to me, Brian, it's really important, you need to understand it. And they would say all sorts of stuff. They would always try to convince me, they'd say something like this, you've heard this, like, well, suppose, Brian, a train was coming and the train weighed this much and you're on the train, Brian, how would you know when the train would get there? I said, well, I'd pull out my phone and ask Siri or look at Google. They said, well, suppose you didn't have a cell phone. So I'm at a train station getting ready to leave, and I don't have a cell phone. Yes, I would go back and get my cell phone. Are you, you understanding? Any, not, okay, you'd get your phone. Okay, third, they said, well, what happens if the cell phone towers are down? So I'm at a train station getting ready to leave, and the cell phone towers are down. I said, yes. I said, okay, well, then I would go ask one of the people who I just bought the ticket from what time the train was leaving. They said, okay, well, suppose there's nobody at the train station. I said, all right, hold on, hold on. So I don't have my phone with me, and I'm leaving. The cell phone towers are down, and there's nobody at the train station but me. They said, yes, what would you do? I said, what is this, the apocalypse? I mean, what is going on? When would that ever happen? And so they would just try to tell me, Brian, algebra is so important. And by the way, for you math teachers who want to explain to me the importance of math, please send all of your emails to scott at fbcconway.org. That is Scott. He'd love to field all of those emails. But no matter how much they wanted me to see the importance, I just never... Never could get it. But now, now I'm a teacher, 
And now I have the privilege of explaining to people why what I teach matters and why the nuances and the details are really important. You see, studies show that the vast majority of Americans still believe in God. So that's a good thing. But there's this growing group of people, especially for my generation, which of course you can understand I have a big burden for. In my generation, there's this big group growing. They're called the nuns. It's one-third of my generation. And what it is is they believe in God, but they don't have any religious affiliation, and they don't really think it matters what God you believe in. They, see, they think something like this. They say, well, there's so many different faith groups out there. How can I know which one's right? Or they say, well, I mean, truth, well, there's really no such thing as truth. I mean, so how can you claim anything is true? They say, why not just play the middle, stay in between, and at the end, right, you really haven't committed one way or the other, and you just kind of see what happens. And they say, well, at the end, isn't faith just important? It doesn't really matter what you have faith in, does it? But you see, unlike algebra, your faith actually matters. Unlike, well, I'm not going to keep picking on algebra, but that your view of God actually matters. And if any of us or all of us would take the time to understand the different faith systems out there, we take the time to understand the different views of God, we would realize that there are big differences, big differences that contradict each other, so they can't all be true. In fact, the God of the Christian faith is so different than any other faith system out there. And there's so much at stake here. I mean, think about it. The last thing you would want to do is find out you're worshiping a false god. The last thing you would want to do is think you're worshiping the true God, but it turns out that God doesn't even exist. All faith systems can't be true because they all claim exclusive stuff that contradict with other systems. I just want to go over a quickly a couple with you so you can understand what I'm talking about. We have the Mormon view of God. It says, their belief system can be summed up with a quote by an early Mormon leader. A man now is, God once was. As God now is, a man may be. Their faith system believes that you can become a God. And it also teaches that Jesus was the physical son of God begotten by a heavenly mother. Then you have the Jehovah Witness view of God. They believe God is one, of course, but they believe he created lesser gods, and Jesus was the archangel Michael before he came down in bodily form. You have the Scientology view of God. Their view of God is left undefined, which I guess is super good for them. You can, God can be whatever you feel he is. And it's not until the eighth dimension will he truly reveal himself to you. So you got about seven dimensions. You're just kind of playing around with, with what you think. Then you have the Buddhist view of God. Well, Buddha never actually claimed to God. There is no deity. It's a philosophy. It's a way of life. But there is no deity you worship. You have the Hindu view of God. Check this out. They have 330 million named gods. How many people you think know all 330 million names? Right, yeah, like, I don't, I don't know. We're just going to leave that up. Someone else figure it out. And then you have the Muslim view of God. And their concept of God is that he's distant and removed. He isn't a personal or intimate God. And they deny the atonement of what Jesus did on the cross. They deny the incarnation. 
They deny grace as a means to salvation. You see, all of these things, while they may sound like they're similar, they're, they're not even close. Their view of God and what they do with Jesus is completely different than the Christian faith system. And as you can see, they're radically different, but with all faith systems, not only do they believe differently about God and about Jesus, but there's different beliefs within their practices, their essentials. Apologist Ravi Zacharias explains this a little bit more. I have the quote up on the screen because it's very long, so follow along with me. He says, for example, Hinduism has two non-negotiable beliefs, karma and reincarnation. No Hindu will trade these away. In Buddhism, there is the denial of the essential notion of the self. Buddhists believe that the self, as we understand it, does not exist. And our ceasing to desire will be the cause of all the end of all suffering. If we deny these premises, we devain Buddhism. Islam believes that Muhammad is the last and final prophet, and the Quran is perfect revelation. If we deny those two premises, we have denied Islam. Even naturalism, which poses as irreligion, is exclusive. Naturalism teaches that anything supernatural or metaphysical is outside the realm of evidence and purely an opinion, not a matter of fact. In the Christian faith, we believe Jesus is the consummate experience of God in the person of his Son and is the Savior and Redeemer of the world. We cannot deny these premises and continue to be Christians. He goes on to say, truth by definition is exclusive. Everything cannot be true. Even if everything is true, then nothing is false. The law of non-contradiction does apply to reality. Two contradictory statements cannot both be true in the same sense. Thus, to deny the law of non-contradiction is to affirm it at the same time. You may as well be talking about a one-ended stick as to talk about truth all-inclusive. I know that was a long quote, but I hope you learned a little bit. And here's the big point. All faith systems claim truth. All faith systems claim essentials. A lot of times, especially today, Christianity is getting a bad rap for claiming absolute troops, but you have to understand, all faith systems claim truth. They have their view or their prophet or their scriptures, all of them. And no faith system would appreciate the buffet style. Well, we pick a little bit from here and pick a little bit from there and just assume that we, we have now created our own faith system with exclusive truths. You see, the Christian view of God isn't the same as everybody else's, and they're not all the same at all. In the very beginning, the one thing we have to embrace, kind of the start of our faith, is simply this. I believe that the God of the Bible is the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm sure that's probably, some of you, who you, looked this Sunday, excuse me, you looked at this in Sunday school, or maybe it's the first time you're hearing it today, but I'm sure most people have been in church for a long time, probably like, yeah, okay, I understand that. Because these things, or this statement, these two core beliefs in here, is something that we've probably all been taught and grew up with. And this is what we're going to unpack this morning. But before we start, just want to catch us up on, on what we're doing here, because remember, there's this thing called philosophy. Anybody heard of it? Don't worry, we're not doing it today, okay? Philosophy tries to give answers for the existence of God. So they want to argue about how can you know there's a God and that kind of stuff. We're not doing that here this morning. And then you have theology. Theology assumes God and talks about what kind of God stuff like that. Christian theology assumes two important 
elements to start off with. It assumes God, and it assumes God is revealed through what? The Scriptures, right. So when we're in the field of Christian theology, we're not arguing about that. It assumes this is God's Word, and it assumes that God exists, and it's God's Word that reveals Himself to us. And that is what's so amazing about the Scriptures is they never try to prove God. They just assume it. Look at how it opens. Genesis 1-1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's just assumed. They don't make an argument for it. They just said, yeah, we know we see her, of course. And he created absolutely everything. In the New Testament, Romans 1.20, Paul says it like this. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Paul says, if you just look at the world around you, creation bears witness to there being a God, meaning the evidence around us that is creation shows us that somebody probably created it. It's the creation, this natural revelation. The fact that we're here says, okay, there's probably a higher power. And then we have special revelation, Jesus being Christ, being the ultimate. But then we also have the special revelation of his word that explains to us who he is. And it's in the scriptures we find that we know, excuse me, the scriptures tell us that there is a one true God. And that's what we believe, that there is one true God that has revealed himself not only through creation, but through his word. We do not believe there's one God among many gods. We believe there is just one who made the heavens and made the earth. You may remember the story after Moses led God's people out of the out of slavery into the promised land. If those of you who are with us for the story probably remember going over that. Moses led him out. Remember, he took him to the mountain, gave him the Ten Commandments. You guys remember that? Have you heard of the Ten Commandments? We're like, yeah, okay. All right, we've heard of that. Good, we're on the same page. Look at the first one that it says, Exodus 22 through 3. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It literally reads, it, or there, is not to be to you other gods in my presence. There shouldn't be any other gods in your presence. And since he is everywhere, and since he is the creator of all things, there is nowhere we should go or can go that we should be in the presence of other gods. Only him. Then he says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or a likeness of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or the water under the sea. And this is that problem that we've talked about that we see over and over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, idolatry, where they're worshiping or ascribing worth to something else. And remember, all idolatry, even though they may have names for other gods or little figures, remember, they always represent something whether it's agriculture or something like that, they're always worshiping created things. And while idolatry may seem foreign to us, it's not as foreign as we think. Idolatry is anything that we ascribe worth or worship to, something that we believe gives us worth or something we want to worship. It's anything that we can talk about wanting to serve or live for or sacrifice for. 
Even something as simple as a goal can become idolatry. Take, for instance, your career, and you've probably seen this with others, probably not you, but I'm sure you've seen it with somebody else, right? Take, for instance, your career. You start off just wanting to do your best. You went to school or maybe you just went to the straight workforce. You want to have ambitions. You have dreams. You just, you just have this good, healthy goal. But your career should assist you in serving God. And so you go after this career goal. You start working really hard. This career should provide for your family. And then somewhere along the way, your career stops serving you and you start serving your career? Where you start living for it? You start sacrificing for it? The only reason why you get up in the morning is to go do that job because without it, you wouldn't have value or worth? If anything becomes your main thing or the most important thing, you're in vast danger of idolatry thinking that is the most important thing in your life. One thing, for instance, that is extremely popular today in my generation, and I promise you I'm completely guilty of it, is our families becoming our idols. And the way to think about this is when I make decisions, am I making decisions in the best interest of my family, or am I making decisions based off of what God has asked me to do? Is the most important thing in my life my family's comfort or serving God? Do you think it's possible that God would call your family to be out of your comfort zone in order to serve him? Yes, he absolutely will call you to get uncomfortable to serve him. You see, this may help some of us, but did you know your identity isn't found in how your children behave or how your children act or what your children become? Your worth is found in your, excuse me, your identity and your worth is found in Jesus Christ. Some of us ascribe way too much worth to what our children do that it ends up hurting us. It could be an idol in your life. And of course we want to lead our families, we want to do the best to our families, but they should never take more priority than God. They should never be our main thing. According to God, my focus should be God. He deserves all my worship. Easy example is money. Is it easy to make sure that I, excuse me, it's easy to not give back to God so I can ensure my family has what it wants? No, I'm just assuming here we can all probably afford what our families need, correct? Yeah, just most of us, what, what they need. But how easy is it to not give to God because of our family's wants? Rather than trusting God and letting him to take care of our families. You see, many theologians who are way smarter than me, all the ones I've read say this same thing, and it's pretty big. Idolatry is the key to all sin. All of it. If I just talked about idolatry, like, Brian, it doesn't even have my life. Do you sin? Yes, then idolatry is a problem. You see, I... All sin starts with us letting something take priority over God. And when it takes priority over God, then we listen to it or we bend to it or whatever that may be, whatever that sin is. So idolatry is a big deal. Because if God is the true God, he deserves all my worth. He deserves all my attention and worship. And then I reorient my life around him. He doesn't reorient it around me. 
So we see the New Testament and Old Testament both tell us that there is one true God. And then throughout the pages of the New Testament and hinted at in the Old Testament, we see that he's not only the true God, but he's the triune God. And let's just be honest, this is where things get complicated. Anybody ever heard of the Trinity? Good. If you went to Sunday school class, your teachers were supposed to explain that in full detail today to stop you from having any questions. If they didn't, I'm sorry, but that's what I told them that they were supposed to do. But it's in the New Testament that we see there are three unique persons, but all make up one God. Here's a scripture for you, Matthew 3, 16 through 17. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It's in this one passage, the baptism of Jesus, we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And let's just be honest about it. This is probably the hardest topic to understand in all of our faith. And I found this quote today that I want to share with you. It was so comforting. Because when I go to study the Trinity, I'm probably like you. I'm like, all right, today the day, I'm going to come in and I'm going to figure it all out. I mean, I'm, I got it. And so I go in there with a noble goal. And I come out as confused as ever. But this quote by Millard Erickson, which I, I use his quotes all the time. He's a PhD, teaches at Baylor, writes a systematic theology book, which is 1,200 pages, really small font. And the only reason why I say that is that even this quote should be comforting to you of what he says about the Trinity. He says, It appears that Tertullian was right in affirming that the doctrine of the Trinity must be divinely revealed, not humanly constructed. It is so absurd from a human standpoint that no one would have invented it. We do not hold to the doctrine of the Trinity because it is self-evident or logically cogent. We hold to it because he has revealed that this is what he is like. As someone has said of this doctrine, try to explain it, you'll lose your mind. But try to deny it, and you'll lose your soul. And so here's the thing about the Trinity. We don't fully understand it, and we don't believe it because it's easy. We believe it because that's what God has revealed himself as. And that's what we hold to. This is what he tells us, and the more I try to wrap my mind around it, the more I get confused. Perhaps there's an algebra problem for it, right? I don't know. But here's what comforts me. The start of our faith, well, for many of us, the start of our faith was this idea of eternal life. Anybody heard of eternal life through Jesus Christ before? That was appealing, wasn't it? If you didn't know, okay, the Bible tells us through Jesus we can live forever and ever. And so here's what's comforting. When I think about living forever and ever, never ending, every day there's a next day, does that confuse anybody? Is that hard to understand? It's never going to end, ever and ever and ever. It never stops. Keeps, think about it tonight when we try to go to sleep. It's a great way to fall asleep, okay? It never stops. If I can't wrap my mind around that, just a basic promise from God, then I'm just fully convinced I can't understand him. And it gives me a peace that says, you know, God is just so much bigger than my mind. One of the great ways to understand the Trinity, because all human illustrations or all of them break down at some point, but one of the best ways to understand is to understand what it's not. And so it's not, excuse me, God is not three separate gods. We don't believe that. God is not one God who manifests himself in three different roles. 
And there is no hierarchy when it comes to their roles. But what we can see is the triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. And while they're equal in every way, they're subordinate in roles where the Father sends the Son and the Son sends the Spirit. What we can understand is that through that, we see this idea of God being a community God, a relational God, which we'll talk about in a different sermon one day. But the key belief we're just thinking about and holding dear to it to start our whole sermon series off is, I believe that God of the Bible is the one true God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, the question in Scripture is never, is there a God? It's who is God? And he reveals himself to us over and over again. And there's plenty of evidence, and I hope you've taken the time to read or think through if you struggle with that. There's plenty of evidence out there that reveals there is a creator, God. I mean, the more scientists discover the fascinating aspects of our, of our world and how everything has been designed, I mean, excuse me, everything is so detailed, the more and more we see that something had to make this. So the question isn't, is there? The question is, who are you going to serve? Because all human beings serve something. There's no such thing as being neutral. All of us give our life to something. You remember that story after they went from, the Israelites went from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. They were supposed to go to the promised land. Didn't work out so well. They kicked dust for 40 years. Next generation came to take the promised land. Remember through Joshua. And God had demonstrated their, his love for them, his protection for them. He demonstrated just his care and provisions for them. But when they were going to take this land and live in this land, Joshua said, listen, your heart can't be divided. And he says this to him. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors. Worship beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And you see, that's the same question you or I are faced with today. Joshua said you can't be divided. You can't give yourself to both of them. He says if you want to worship those gods from Egypt that we just left, that our God just beat, go for it. If you want to worship the, land, the gods of the people in the land we just conquered, if that seems good to you, do that as well. Make a choice, though. You can't serve all of them. It's not a matter of, remember, if we're going to serve, but who we're going to serve. And so I ask you this morning, if you don't serve the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ, who's revealed himself through Jesus, if that's not who you're choosing to serve, then who are you choosing to serve? Who are you giving your life to? Because there are so many things, and you know this better than me probably, there are so many things in this world that crave our attention, that demand our attention, that want us to give ourselves to it that we talk about living for and sacrificing for and serving. I mean, some of these false gods are, well, the God of pleasure. Who doesn't want to feel good? Or the God of sports. And I'm talking, yes, Saturday college football, Sunday NFL, but also what people do with their kids. 
the God of sports. We teach our kids they're the most important things in their lives. So the gods of possessions, the God of power and control, the God of career, the God of family. My prayer is that your choice is to serve and live for and sacrifice the one true God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I ask you this morning, have you given him his rightful place in your life? You see, the way to dethrone an idol is to enthrone the king, and that's Jesus Christ. Have you given him the worth? Have you ascribed the worth to him that he deserves? Have you worshipped him? Is there something else in your life that's really priority, really number one? You see, God doesn't want to be a mini-God in your life. He wants to be the one and only. And so this morning, we're going to take communion together. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to take communion. It's not closed, meaning it's not just for our church members. If you believe in Jesus, we'd love for you to take it with us this morning. But when we come to the table this morning, I want us to remember one more thing about this God we're talking about. Is that he's the true triune God. But of course, in what we see at the cross, he's also the trustworthy God. See, Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died. See, one of the things I do when I talk to people about God, and they say, well, Brian, how can I trust him to give him my life? I mean, how do I know that God is for me? I mean, I'm supposed to say this prayer, I'm supposed to reorient my life, right? but how can I really know that God cares? How do I know that he really loves me? I mean, how do I know this, Brian? So the cross... God has demonstrated his great love that he took responsibility for your sin and went to the cross and died for you, died for me. So we can know him and have a relationship with him. We have a trustworthy God. And so when we come to this table this morning, I want us to think about how trustworthy he is and what do you need to trust him with this morning? What's that thing in your heart that's distracting you? What's that thing in your heart that's bothering you? What's that thing in your heart? Maybe it's your health, maybe it's your career, maybe it's your family. What's that thing in your heart that's trying to override everything else in your life? What do you need to just give to God this morning? See, the Apostle Paul tells us that when we come to the table, we need to examine our lives. We need to examine our hearts, and that's what I want to do with you this morning. I want us just to have a, a short, guided prayer time. Well, I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then I'm going to mention some things that maybe you need to confess. You see, this dethroning of idolatry, this repenting of sin, it's not just a one-time thing that we do when we come to Christ. Repentance is an everyday process. Repentance is an everyday thing where we confess to God, and did you know he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all of our sins? All you have to do is go to him and confess. And ask for forgiveness, and he'll do that. So will you pray with me this morning with all eyes closed and head bowed?